uh, started to appreciate the value of taking everything that I'd learned in design and applying it to the design of more meaningful things. I always knew that I wanted to get involved in the creation of something new. It didn't, it didn't feel like you needed to explain the religion. My name's Chris Meredith, and welcome to The Common Creative. And I'm Paul Fairweather. And on today's show, we have a very exciting guest, Ofer Yontov, Chief Design Officer at ANZ Bank. Say hello, Ofer. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. Great pleasure to have you on the show. Before we get into the detail, a quick word from our sponsors. Both Chris and Paul help companies embrace creativity in the workplace. For details of their online masterclasses, head to Eventbrite and search Paul Fairweather or Chris Meredith to find out more. Now, off air, um, we're really excited to have you on the show because of your fascinating background and your current role. Uh, as I mentioned, you're Chief Design Officer at ANZ Bank, but your career has flip-flopped between agency roles, a very exciting creative design uh, 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 innovation agency. Uh, you've worked at Westpac Bank, you flipped into a startup, uh, and now as Chief Design Officer at ANZ Bank, I think it's fair to say you're one of Australia's most influential and experienced designers on a mission to put design as a strategic capability for ANZ Bank. Uh, so I'm really excited to hear from you, and particularly what it's been like applying creativity in buzzy, small, vibrant areas, and how it contrasts with the big structured environment of ANZ. Is that fair to say, Ophel, that you've got that, those two perspectives on creativity? Um, well, uh, Chris, I think what's fascinating when I reflect on my career and when I when I talk to a lot of designers about um, the um, the growth that they have in their career, I often suggest to them that there's value in spending time uh, agency side as a consultant um, and spending time client side. And then as I've gone through my career, I've expanded that to also suggest that if you have an opportunity to actually participate in or build your own startup that may even crash and burn fabulously, as it did in my case, um, that that adds a third dimension, right, where you actually have an ownership and a stake in something that you're building and where um, you basically have to uh, be accountable for so many of the roles and um, where um, basically everything stops <laughs> when, when you know, if you decide not to get out of bed in the morning. So, yes, um, Chris, I do think that um, it's incredibly helpful to have many, many different perspectives in your career. And then and, and at some point, you don't you don't really appreciate those as you go through them until you get to a certain point and realize that um, you are able to take a step back and look at challenges that you're facing inside an organization from many different perspectives. And I can I can almost pick out those who've come from a consultancy before they've joined an organization or those who've had some skin in the game. Um, and I think it adds a, it, it adds another dimension to to um, the way that they um, solve problems, the way that they engage with other people, um, and in many cases the quality of their outcomes. I would say. Mm. Off air, your, what's your what's your original background? Did you train as a designer, as a graphic or product designer? Um, uh, that's a very good question. And interestingly, I've gone uh, it, when I was studying, um, and I'll, I'll describe what I studied in a second, um, I, I wouldn't have described myself as a designer. So um, 
even prior to going to university, I always knew that I wanted to get involved in the creation of something new. And my heroes, I was a bit of a dork. Uh, my heroes were mostly um, inventors and uh, physicists and entrepreneurs um, and industrial designers. Um, and so uh, when I, I went to university, I actually ended up studying mechanical engineering um, and business. Um, interestingly, I, I applied to uh, architecture. I applied to medicine. Um so I kind of looked at a range of pursuits, but I was always interested, even medicine was around the creation of prosthetics. Um, architecture, I decided very early on, I just didn't feel that I had the sketch hand worthy of being an architect. And on reflection, I don't know how important that actually is. Or I look at the sketch hands of many really fabulous architects and, and I think I can do better. Um, but um, in the end, decided that engineering was a good kind of basis. So for me, um, I, early on, my interest was in product design. Um, and the study in business was very much to support getting products to market. But I never thought of myself as a designer. First and foremost, I really did think of myself as an engineer. Um, but it, so it wasn't until I went to uh, joined IDEO uh, in Silicon Valley that um, I was introduced, and even then I joined as an engineer in what I thought was a product design company. And it wasn't until I spent time there that I was introduced to a much broader description of designer and started to think of myself as a designer. That's, that's so interesting. Um, just so you know, these days the kids, most of the kids coming to architecture don't have any uh, hand skills. It's all on the computer. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> That's it. It's a lost art That's or it. it's a losing it, art. Um, it is a lost art. I have to say, I still, I still appreciate it. And it, yeah. Well, you're talking to another, I studied engineering at university, but unlike you, I saw myself, saw myself as a rock star. So I spent my entire days practicing guitar and busking my way through the exams. Which again is another, which is another creative pursuit. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'd love to hear about your transition to ANZ because you'd seen the world of banking before and, and you'd experienced the kind of freedom of a startup and the, the, the creative opportunities that, that offered. What was the conversation like? I mean, when that first conversation first started, there must have been a whole bunch of questions in your head about what you can do and how you, the freedom or the creative opportunities you've had. And the same must have been true in reverse, that a big organization like ANZ, looking at this person who'd had the freedom to do his own thing, express himself in his own way, must have equally thought, can we contain this guy? How did that go? Oh, so if I paraphrase your question, you're basically saying, after everything you did, why would you join another bank? I mean, right? yes, fair enough. <laughs> yes. So, um, and so there's a very good reason for that. Interestingly, I would say if you speak to most bankers um, and ask them whether they always aspired to be bankers, I think the, the resounding consensus would be absolutely not. Um, in fact, I often jokingly say that, you know, if somebody had told me when I was in school or university or even maybe 15 years ago that I would end up uh, in banking and that I would thoroughly enjoy banking, I would have thought that somehow my career had become a dismal failure, right? Um, it just, because it was out, it was very much out of my realm of consciousness. I'd spent most of my um, earlier years in des design really focusing on product 
design. Um, and interestingly, started to become quite disillusioned with the design of physical products, even though I absolutely love the manufacturing process. Um, and I get a kick, I get a kick out of um, just, you know, disassembling um, any kind of product. And, and um, I, I still feel like I think very mechanically, but started to get disillusioned because I felt that I was participating in designing beautiful landfill, right? Um and so I uh, started to appreciate the value of taking everything that I'd learned in design and applying it to the design of more meaningful things. So solving bigger systemic problems for, uh, you know, we, we spent some time doing work for the U.S. government. Um, and there were some uh, really incredible projects we did for nonprofits, helping them think about um, supporting um, uh, entrepreneurs uh, in Africa uh, to build social ventures and looking at um, uh, helping uh, the U.S. government tackle uh, childhood obesity or um, teenage pregnancy and started to, it took me a long time to realize that everything I'd learned designing physical products, going out and understanding people and their needs and how they engage and uh, working with an incredibly talented cross-functional team to better understand what people are actually trying to do, those kind of hidden insights, and then translate them into something that actually solves a problem for people and hopefully makes their brightens their day. That all of those things that I was doing designing physical products could be applied so elegantly to solving kind of more meaningful things. And so I started to get much more interest in and started to do much more work with service-based organizations, um, hospitality, uh, automotive maintenance, um, various social um, organizations, and then eventually started to move into financial services. And this is still when I was with IDO. So that's the kind of history there. Um, um, I had spent uh, 10 fabulous years with IDO working with all manner of companies. And the thing that I particularly appreciated was when we were helping large organizations become more innovative or, or kind of better appreciate how to embed design inside their organizations. And that's actually one of the reasons that I joined ANZ, I should have spoken about, is I just felt um, a really lovely culture, right? And that's probably what you're feeling as well. And so that that goes beyond the design community. There's something there which is a little bit more collaborative, a bit more respectful, um, and that makes a big difference. It's, so it's, it is corporate, but it's got this kind of softness to it as well. And so um, when my wife and I wanted to return to Australia, um, we um, there was an opportunity at Westpac. Westpac was actually one of IDEO's clients, and they had such a great experience with uh, this approach. It kind of opened their eyes to the application of um, design thinking or human-centered design that they wanted to build this capability internally. So I joined Westpac because I, I, at that point, um, it was no longer um, that foreign to me. And by the same token, this was an incredible opportunity with an enthusiastic group of leaders to actually embed design and try to make meaning at, at scale. And if I could interrupt there, it, it's always yeah. a risk because that, that's a common brief. Let's get someone into the business who's really going to shake it up and help us think new thoughts. And it, there's a, usually a, some kind of a struggle there, whether the, the incomer can actually infect the business with the new thinking or whether the current business kind of squashes the, the incomer yes. with their establishing. I mean, without giving away too much, I mean, 
How did that go? And, uh, were they able to live up to that promise of bringing design, human-centered design into the business? Well, so interestingly, having spent 10 years, um, I like to say it was as if I was, um, I'd spent 10 years in the monastery, right? So ah. uh, there are a lot of, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of creative organizations and frankly, a lot of consultancies who have a very specific way of approaching the world, right? They, they, oftentimes they call it their IP. Um, and uh, at IDEO, we never thought about it as, as, as intellectual property. This was something that we did and we shared it very freely, but it was the way that we thought. And so coming into Westpac, I genuinely believed that I was bringing, um, I was, I, I was going to evangelize a way of thinking and a process and a methodology, and that would change everything. And within five minutes of joining Westpac, I think I had that completely slapped out of me. And I realized how critical leadership is in the change process, right? And so that, so I got that realization very quickly. Um, to their credit, there was uh, the leaders who brought me in, um, had um, influence across a particular part of the business, the wealth management part of the business, uh, BT Financial Group, which Chris, I know you, uh, I know that you know well. Um, and so it was interesting for me to see that within BT Financial Group, we were able to influence very quickly because the the uh, the leaders valued and created the space for design. It was a lot more difficult outside of that division. So the aspiration was always to kind of um, influence and transform the big red W. And I'm glad to say that over time, what we did incubating design inside BT Financial Group certainly had an influence. And now you'll find that there is a thriving uh, design team at Westpac, um, which I'm very, very proud of and very excited about. Um, but what I realized, and to your question, is it's all, it's very much about the what the leaders value and the space that they create and the permissions they create because design is such a delicate thing and creativity is such a delicate thing that it can get quashed through very, even just subtle body language from a leader. So I would say in my, my one of my mantras is it's all leadership all the time. So um, off air, I'm assuming that experience held you in good stead when you then went to ANZ, uh, given that you sort of understood or was the role different at ANZ or? Uh, so interestingly, um, you know, there was a point where, um, so I was at, I was at Westpac for five years um, and I, I genuinely um, and thoroughly enjoyed my time there. There were some fabulous people there and I think we did, we did great work. Um, we had a, I was very fortunate to have um, a, a, quite an incredible team. Some of the folks were actually there before I joined, and then I had the good fortune to bring a number of my ex-colleagues from IDEO, um, and they in turn brought a number of uh, additional people to Australia, all of whom have remained, and uh, many of whom have mm. become citizens, and they've all moved on and built um, great influential design organisations in their own right. So um, I think all around Westpac was a, a really, really positive uh, and valuable experience. There was a point where... Um, I started to feel um, I had a, we had a very sad uh, death in our family. Uh, my only sister um, uh, took her own life. Uh, she'd suffered from uh, anxiety and depression for many years, and that deeply, deeply affected me. And there was a point where I reflected on how tenuous um, life is, 
and um, and realized that there were still some things that I really I would regret if I didn't do. Um, and one of them was to build and participate in a startup. That was one of the reasons I moved to Silicon Valley in the first time, uh, in the first place, and ended up having too much fun at IDEO. Um, and so um, an opportunity <laughs> emerged. A friend of mine approached me with a really wacky idea, um, and um, and I decided the time was right for a variety of reasons to jump ship and kind of try my hand at, at startup land, which we did for about three years. And as I said, it sort of crashed and burned royally. That's a whole other story. But I, to be honest, I never actually thought that I would join another bank, um, not because I'd had a bad experience, but I actually was very enthusiastic about um, building my own uh, company. Um, but towards the end of our um, startup experience, I was approached by Miley Carnegie, who uh, had previously run Google in Australia uh, and before that had run um, Procter & Gamble, Asia Pacific. Um, and Miley was introduced to me through a, a, a shared um, contact at Procter & Gamble in the States. And uh, when I met her, uh, she was brought in, she was actually headhunted and brought in to help build uh, the digital capability at ANZ and to transform uh, ANZ. Um, and when I met her, what I saw in her was the level and the passion and the capability of leadership that um, I was, uh, I guess, searching for um, at Westpac, right? Again, going back to um, uh, leadership creates the space. The higher the leader, the more shadow they cast, and therefore the more opportunity there is to transform the organization. Miley was uh, approached by Shane Elliott, who is a fabulous CEO, incredibly open, uh, incredibly dedicated to change, and very enthusiastic about bringing in people with areas of expertise that he's unfamiliar with but understands the importance of, right? And so what I saw was the right conditions for change. And that at that point was very important to me. So I realized that there was still some unfinished business that I had at Westpac, if you like. <laughs> yeah. And so I sometimes jokingly, I'm quite openly kind of jokingly say that I'm kind of at ANZ, I'm doing my unfinished Westpac business. <laughs> right? Tell me, you, but your role at Westpac, you run a team of around 160 designers spread around the globe, mainly Australia, New Zealand, but around the globe. And they're the ones that do the, the design work, the engineering work, if you like. And listening to you, you're obviously passionate about that. But as a leader, you have to create an environment rather than do the work. And so I'm wondering how it feels to, to now be that leader rather than that person who gets to play with the toys and actually do the engineering to, to deliver the deliver yeah. the output that you want to deliver. Uh, Chris, that is a fabulous question. And it's one that um, I think um, I'm still... I'm still making, I'm still coming to terms with, if you like, right? I'm still learning my way through or fumbling my way through. So firstly, let me clarify. We, we have uh, over 160 designers at IDEO, um, but we do not have a single um, team. And so most of our designers, I have a very small centralized enterprise team, uh, but most of our designers are distributed across the business. And um, after having worked in many organizations and looked at many different models, you know, centralized versus decentralized, I think we've got a really good balance where essentially the designers are embedded into cross-functional teams within the various divisions. And they are they are part of the family and they own the, the challenges of that business the same way their marketing risk technology uh, colleagues do as well, or data science, etc. Um, and so, um, therefore, to your question, 
so much of my role is about influence rather than con- control. Um, and so I've had a, a, a two challenges, and you mentioned them. One of them is um, how to how to mobilize such a distributed group of people, all of whom uh, should really have their primary loyalty, if you like, to their part of the business, right? If they're working in home loans or um, wealth or um, small business or institutional, right? They have to get up in the morning and focus on how to create the best possible product, experience and service for that particular customer, right? Or we even have designers who work in our HR function to focus on designing fabulous staff experiences. So one of my great challenges is how to essentially um, create as inspiring a focus on what we described as our design strategy, right, and our focus on building design capability um, and to ensure that our designers feel as much um, uh, responsibility for building that capability as they do for building fabulous experiences. And so that's, that's, I can talk a little bit more about some of the things I'm doing in that space. But the, the one that's been very difficult for me is I love participating in the design process, right? And, um, and, and um, sometimes um, I am approached as a subject matter expert rather than a leader of others. And it's taken me quite a while. I still fall into the trap of trying to solve the problem myself and roll up my sleeves. And I've had to make a concerted effort. And my team have slapped me around a few times to kind of help me recenter. <laughs> but but there is a real challenge when, <clears throat> and sometimes I wonder whether it's best, uh, there might be more, it might be more effective to be the leader <clears throat> of a function if you are not a subject matter expert in that function. I, I was wondering about that, whether they'll whisk you off to switch you with somebody else yeah. for that exact reason. That's Paul, it. I know you're dying to jump in with a question. Yeah, yeah. so... I, I, I'm, I'm really interested, you know, and, I, and that's a, a really interesting dilemma and one that I sort of also understand, you know, in a certain way, you know, applies to architecture. But how, how are, you know, you and your team, you know, the reverse, how are they received in those individual teams? You know, like the – and the, uh, coming back to the, the title of our show, The Common Creative, you know, do they have a creative influence? You know, like because as you said before, you know, there's bankers, you know, <laughs> and then you've got these designers in amongst them. You know, how's it how's it received? Is it you know do you see a positive response? You know, from their involvement uh, in those teams. So um, <clears throat> I think with 160 people, there is a uh, it varies quite dramatically. I'd say uh, if I had to answer for the collective, I'd say without a shadow of a doubt. Right, but it's obviously more nuanced than that. Um, yeah, there are, um, and this goes back to actually the the challenge. The, the first challenge that we have is around ensuring that people understand the value and the breadth of design. Right, and so when you talk about how are they perceived, I think <clears throat> we've got some leaders who genuinely understand the breadth of design. Right, but then we've got a lot of leaders who, in our organisation, frankly, just like the the public have got a very uh, limited understanding of design. And so, and most people, when when uh, the general kind of perception is that design is really about aesthetics, right? That it's about yeah. the the visual layer that you pop on top of everything else, right? The, the, the lipstick on the pig, if you like, right? Or the crayons department. <laughs> um, and so we still, we still have some pockets where that's the perception. Um, and so they've even hired people 
um, who they believe are the designers that they need for their organization. So we've got, you know, groups where people have hired really talented visual designers. Um, and I think they're doing amazing things. But um, even our visual designers, in some cases, um, um, are not looked at in a strategic capacity, even though we've got some folks who really are able to go beyond um, designing, making the current solution look beautiful, but really going back to help their teams um, really ask the deeper questions of what's the actual problem we're trying to solve? Why is this valuable? Why should we be doing it? What's the the value to the customer, to their broader stakeholders, to the business, etc.? cetera? Um, or looking to the designers to actually facilitate, you talk about the common creative, facilitate a shared design process. A lot of our designers, because they're so pickled in how to follow a design process, um, we've started to try to get them to realize that they can actually act as a coach and a guide to all of their non-design colleagues to actually take them on the journey of what it means to go through a collective design process. So we've had some designers who kind of recognize that and speak on behalf of the design discipline, and they've had a bigger impact far beyond just the impact of their chosen discipline or their their contribution to the team. And then we've got other pockets where I feel like we've got designers who are still essentially taking a brief um, and being directed to do piecemeal elements from, from leaders and teams who aren't quite recognizing the value that they could get from a broader team sport of design or to actually get their designers to do to participate in the strategic process or the, the designing the function and not just the form of what it is they're creating. It's, it sounds like that's the goal. I was going to say, what's the end game here? If if design becomes a strategic capability for ANZ, is the end game that you, you effectively have a team of coaches that are facilitating design rather than people with pens knocking out pretty pictures. Is, is that where it moves to? Well, we, we, I, when I talk about my role, I describe it as having essentially two components. Um, if, if the ultimate objective is to build a sustainable design capability in an organization, right? And when we talk about design, we talk about all aspects from very visual to functional to systemic right, to hopefully enabling the business to tackle very complex, wicked problems through a design process. So that's what we mean by embedding design. When I talk about my role, I talk about two elements. The first is building a world-class community of talented design practitioners, right? So we're never going to have thousands of designers, but we will have a very strong, reasonably sizable cohort of um you could almost call them card-carrying designers, right? Those ones who've gone to, they've had a formal background in design. They're incredibly talented at their discipline, whether it's visual, UX, service design, content design, design research, strategic design, right? So that cohort of folks who would would call themselves a, a, a designer in their job title, right? So that's one aspect is we, we, at the end of the day, we do need those craftspeople in the organization on our teams, right? They're not going to deliver anything on their own. They're going to do it within a team, but there's a point where they are the expert at their component of the experience, right? So that's one aspect. The other aspect is what I often call the team sport of design, right? Is helping everybody who participates in create understanding the needs of customers, uh, creating and maintaining all of our products and services for them to understand the 
value of design, for them to have a design mindset, for them to know how to participate in and manage a design process that goes way beyond those design practitioners and is really the remit of everybody on the team. And sometimes it's almost dangerous calling that design. It's essentially just part of a way of working that should also include agile practices and lean practices, right? And um, and uh, business rigor practices, right? Um, and so that's so it's the team sport and some of the specific specialized players on that team. Those are the two aspects. Do you have a technique for explaining the meaning of design to those to the to the kind of resistant groups? I'm thinking. Uh, I think intuitively everybody understands good design. It's when you have a great experience or something just seems to work almost invisibly. You kind of, if somebody highlights that to you, you, you kind of, oh, that's, so I'm wondering what do you, what, what, how do you get people to get the meaning of real design rather than just the pretty pictures of design? Mm-mm. You know, interestingly, um, again, I've gone on a journey here because um, when I was at IDEO uh, in the monastery, um, you know, it didn't, f- it didn't feel like you needed to explain the religion, right? Because by the time people approached IDEO, they'd self-selected, right? And they really valued it and they were willing to pay for it. And so we often didn't find that we really, we were in the very privileged position of not having to explain it at all. You know, it's kind of, it's like the air we breathe. But um, the moment uh, I left, it became clear that um, in order for people to value what I did, I actually had to teach them what I did and actually teach them to value it in the first place. So one of the, one of the very simple frameworks that um, we use, um, and um, I think it's incredibly powerful, is the four orders of design framework from uh, Richard Buchanan at Carnegie Mellon University. And he essentially talks about... Um, and we are careful not to describe them as four levels, right? Because that suggests that one, that there's a hierarchy and some are more important than others, but it really depends on the problem you're trying to solve. And the first order is what's often described as signs and symbols. So it's very much that visual layer. But we use, ex- we, we use examples that illustrate just how powerful that can be, right? If you look at the Obama Hope poster or the Nike swoosh, or the London Underground, right? All of those images had a profound effect on their organizations or their communities, right? And so kind of not to underestimate the value of visual design. So that's the first order. The second order is then um, essentially you could describe it as the marriage between form and function, often artifacts, right? So a lot of uh, architecture, automotive design, industrial design, physical, you know, consumer electronics all form, fall into that realm where the designer or the teams have to solve a broader set of questions, not just what does it look like, but what, how does it perform? Um, how do we ensure that we meet a certain cost unit price that's economical? How do we ship these products? How do we recycle them? Um, are they comfortable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a whole broader set of questions. So that's the second order. The third order is one, and this um, this is where banks and a lot of service organizations play, is when you get to systems and interactions, right? So you're getting to the point of, of, um, of connecting many individual experiences together that might be form and function, right? But if you think about services, they usually involve a set of journeys 
that a customer might go through. And as they go through that journey, they'll have lots of individual touch points or interactions with the organization. And each of those are an opportunity for design. And typically in a bank, you might be visiting a branch, calling a call center, jumping online, all those different things. Exactly yeah. right. Bouncing between various screens on your app and then calling and et cetera, et cetera. Each one of those interactions uh, are an opportunity for deep design, right? But when you get to that third order of design, you're now connecting the dots to, to look at an entire system that needs to work together. And at this point now, it's no longer just about what the customer sees. You have to think about all the aspects that are required to support that customer experience. What's happening in the back end? What technology uh, stack is supporting this? Where's the data coming from? Um, what are we measuring, etc.? How do we make money? Um, so that's the third order of design. And that's that's where we play. And, and so it, already by describing those three, I get a lot of head nods from people in the organization because they can now understand how design can play in all those aspects. And then the fourth order of design, we often describe as massive systemic or wicked problems, right? So these are um, the types of challenges that no individual can solve. Oftentimes, no single organization can solve. So they might be housing affordability or climate change or how to deal with a global pandemic, right? And so we try to explain that um, that can also be thought of as a design problem. There is a challenge. Um, we need to get to a solution. And the solution itself might be multifaceted, right? But design, if practiced well, can be a fabulous tool that enables a lot of players to get together to bear, to come to bear on those sorts of crazy, insane challenges as well. And so the aspiration also at ANZ is that we start to apply design more and more to some of the areas that we care about, uh, around sustainability, around housing affordability, um, and around uh, financial inclusion. Mm. Uh, off air, I'm interested to know whether, you know, this is a sort of a, a bubble uh, with inside ANZ or this is more of a, you know, like a, a global cultural shift in corporations around this embedding design. Because I know 10 years ago in Brisbane, one of the financial institutions up here had a big thing and because the CEO was really connected with design thinking uh, and, you know, and they had this big movement and then he left and then they all got fired and it was over. But, you know, I, I'm so encouraged to hear, you know, you, you know, your experience and what you're doing inside this, you know, large corporate do you think it's what it, it, it's what you're doing unusual, or is it is it spreading, becoming more, you know, accepted uh, and commonplace in in large corporations about embedding designers? Well, Paul, that example from Brisbane um, is very common, and I think it further it further supports the notion that uh, how important the, the the role of the leader is in this kind of change. Right. One of the things that keeps me up at night is um, will um, our design our kind of delicate design movement be sustainable and really get woven into the dna of the company long after we've all moved on right um and um and that's critical uh in many cases um there are some amazing things that happen inside organizations when the leaders the passionate leaders are there they create the space for it they create the visibility um and one of the mistakes I think that is often made is not to think about uh, <clears throat> trying to bake it into the organizational design, right? How do you bake what, you, what you're trying to do, your movement into the business processes and the culture and the measures and the leadership training and all these sorts of things so that when you leave, 
all of those things because they don't change very quickly um, mm-hmm. and bake those things in. So, so you know, we're, we're still working on doing that, but I remind my team often that, you know, our objective here is to create sustainable change that's, in, that's embedded in the fabric of the organization, but it's really hard to do that. Uh, Paul, to answer your other question, 10 years ago, um, this whole design as a strategic capability was very new in Australia. It was still, it was starting to get a little bit more mature in the US and in Europe, but it was very new in Australia. And I have to say, I am unbelievably excited by what I've seen take place in the last 10 years and certainly at an increasing rate now where you've got more and more strategic designers inside the kinds of organizations that we would never have associated design with um, kind of the crown jewels of their organization, the banks, you know, the top tier management consulting companies, um, the Australian tax office, right? And so um, it's quite it's quite exciting and quite remarkable, but it's still incredibly delicate and it feels sometimes like two steps forward, one step back. And it's heavily dependent on non-designed leaders to appreciate it, make the space for it. It's heavily dependent on designers to come in and actually take advantage of that kind of opportunity that's presented to them and leave something behind for the next generation of designers. And so we're all kind of fumbling our way through, but definitely collectively, the design world is starting to get some amazing cut through globally, which is unbelievably exciting. That's really inspiring. Of, uh, the idea of the Australian tax office embracing design, which I think to uh, somebody outside that world might initially make them shudder. And then when you think it through, <laughs> well, you know, it's, you know, who needs design and so but, but when you think it through about how we feel about tax, how many people either are reluctant to pay it or don't pay it or the idea of design embracing a problem like tax sounds really exciting. I, I've got, we've used a lot of your time. I've got one last question for you, which is, I'd, I'd love to know what, what, what you do when you're not at work, because I'm sure you're a very creative, very energetic, passionate individual, and there must be limitations to what you can achieve in your business role. But so do you have a creative or a design outlet when you're not at your desk at work? Well, so firstly, um, uh, a lot of my time when not at work is consumed by my two fabulous boys uh, and my uh, wife and my two cavoodles. So um, I feel like, um, you know, one could argue that parenting is also a creative outlet, much more <laughs> maybe, yeah. uh, constant creative, maybe constant creative, reactive problem solving rather than necessarily. <laughs> yep. Leadership, um, project control, delegation, it. nutrition, you get a lot. Yep. But I think that uh, one of the things that I've um, realized is that I still have a real passion for um, working with my hands and I miss kind of being in a machine shop and um, kind of the physicality of just, you know, drilling and tapping and welding and what have you. And so um, we've actually just finished building a, we live in Sydney, so we live on a bit of a postage stamp, but um, managed to eke out some space and built a shed. And I've got a growing collection of tools and um, I've been just kind of building odds and ends around the house. And so I've really, really appreciated getting back into that. Um, My son and I are scheming to actually buy a 3D printer I still keep my hand in in computer-aided design, um, and I've got some um, little product inventions that um, I've been sitting on for 20 years that I am dying to see the light of day. Um, 
uh, inspired by one of my heroes, Richard Buckminster Fuller, who, among other things, was the inventor of the geodesic dome. Just uh, kind of, if you've been to Epcot Center, you would have seen a big dome made out of triangles. One of the crazy, geeky things that I did in my earlier years was to try to create some way of building those structures. And so I've invented a, a little, a little gadget that let, like, uh, imagine scaffolding, but where you can create weird organic scaffolding shapes rather than something that's kind of rectilinear. So, so there's still a big part of me that's kind of geek mechanical engineer, and I kind of play with that in the sidelines. Um, so- it sounds like one other thing. Lego. It would be you know how to exactly. It's Lego. Lego for big kids. Um, and I'm I'm a desperately, desperately trying to um, uh, build some kind of deeper software development skills. And so I flirted with a lot of courses. And so I'm I feel like a coding voyeur at the moment, right? I kind of I get it. I've I've worked with my startup. I worked very closely on on the. Um, architecture and on the specifications for the software. Um, but I've never been the one to actually, you know, write the lines of code. And so I'm just playing around the edges. But I kind of feel like that would be a fabulous creative outlet for me as well. <laughs> it's, it's actually, that's very, very interesting. Um, Buckminster Fuller is one of my heroes. In fact, one of my mentors from university got to meet him at a conference in the States once. And I'm, I was always so jealous of that guy. Um, my son is 14 and, you know, he's, he's actually into coding now so uh it is a creative outlet um but it's got it's a very different one from my daughter who's painting and building and making clay and stuff like that so yes it's interesting look that that was just an amazing um conversation i have learned so much and i you know consider myself a designer um your 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 sort of global worldview of it you know inside the organization is just so refreshing it's been absolutely fantastic speaking with you yeah, i'd like to echo that off there thank you so much i'm inspired by the idea of wicked systemic challenges to solve with design the idea that change is leadership um and and the idea of of designers in the australian tax office it's been a fantastic uh conversation with you off there really appreciate it Thank you very well, much indeed. Chris, Paul, thank you so much for having me. And I have to say um, compliments to both of you on running this podcast and just kind of uh, moving the dialogue forward, especially at a time where, um, you know, a lot of us may not have visibility into what's happening out there. And so um, it's been a real privilege. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that concludes our show with the amazing Offer Yontov. And if you've enjoyed the show, please leave your feedback. Put a, put a comment in the notes below, give us a rating, and share it with your friends. Uh, look forward to hearing from you this time next week. Yes, and uh, please drop us a line if you uh, maybe have some, some people that you would uh, like to suggest as, as guests. Always looking for uh, you know, creative souls from all around the world to tell their stories. So uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll be back in 2021. See you then. So tune in then. Cheers.